This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. Divorce at any age is such a significant emotional event. And there's concerns about money, kids, loneliness, and all of that. But when you're in your 50s and older, there's added worries like illness, destabilization of adult kids and grandkids, living alone for the first time in decades, what are your retirement hopes, you have elderly parents who might need help. There's so many other issues that come into play. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll discuss how stress affects your health. We'll hear about divorce after 50. We'll learn the top tips to improve your digestion. And lastly, we'll consider the connection between depression and sex. But first, a little bit of business. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian-owned and has been GMP-certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all-natural herbs, vitamins, and minerals in their formulations. The company is site-licensed for manufacturing nutraceuticals by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine pet health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit their website at omegaalphainc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidant. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings, and he's a regular on the show. Welcome back, sir. How are you? Jamie, nice to speak to you again. Yeah, we had a really interesting discussion centered around immunity and and viruses and and white cells last month. But this month, I thought it'd be interesting if we came back and, and we try and solve a problem as to why some people seem to be getting more symptoms with COVID and others seemingly aren't. Why is that? You know, we, we talk about that, and I know you talk about COVID, but what I'm going to talk about applies equally to many different diseases. For mm-hmm. example, an influenza outbreak, okay? Yep. The older people get it, have the symptoms seems a lot more serious than the younger people, right? And then you have people who have other health problems, and they seem to have it worse than other people who are what we call normally healthy, right? Yeah. And back in the day, I would throw up my hands and say, you know, that's a million-dollar question. But if you think of, about how the body works and how the body reacts to being infected, etc. There is a rational explanation, and, and I'll go into this in a second, right? I just want to say a little bit about, before we go into this, launching into this, I just want to talk a little bit about the inflammation process and how it basically works. Right? Okay. And then you can see my tie-in. And then you'll put it all together for and us. And I'll try and tie it in. Okay. okay. Yep. Okay. Basically, Whenever we get infected with anything, right, and I'll use the COVID-19 because I still see that it's, it's an issue and it's in the top of everybody's head. But as I said, an influenza, leaky gut syndrome, all of these things, it's the same basic mechanism. 
whenever you have an infected cell, one of the things that happens, the white blood cells come, it attacks the infected cell, it chews it up, right? And in the process of chewing it up, it releases a whole bunch of of things like other chemical messengers, which basically say, hey, we're in trouble here, send more soldiers my way, right? Mm-hmm. So the body listens and it sends a lot of soldiers down that, that direction, okay? And as the more and more soldiers come, which are white cells, they chew up the dead cells or, or they chew up the infected cells and they, again, release more and more chemical signals. These chemical signals, some of them are free radicals, some of them are specialized enzymes, some of them are very specialized chemicals, and one of the specialized chemicals that I'll write off the bat is histamines, right? And then there's other things called cytokines, etc., that have been released, right? Now, under normal circumstances, if you're healthy, etc., the body also releases other types of chemicals, which says, hey, guys, slow down. We, we don't want a gazillion white blood cells in here because we need to control how many white cells we have in here. So what happens then is that the resolution of this inflammation process is very important, right? And I I know what happens is that a lot of older people, this resolution process is not very potent. And this resolution process also is because when you're sick, uh, for example, let's say I have diabetes or let's say I have arthritis, you're living with chronic inflammation 24-7. So you have this chronic inflammatory response going on all the time. Even simple as cardiovascular issues when you have atherosclerotic plaques, okay? Like atherosclerosis, you have constant chronic low-grade infection going on all the time. And the body is probably trying to resolve as many of these as possible. So you can see what happens with the body. All of a sudden, it's going to throw up its hands, hopefully not, but it's going to say, hey, we're running out of things to stop this inflammation process. And that's why the inflammation process takes a, gets an upper hand, right? Okay. So now you can see why this inflammation process is becoming more and more active, right? Now, in the cases when you get something like the COVID, right, or any type of, like, an influenza, what happens is that all of a sudden you have an acute inflammation, meaning that the white cells attack the underlying tissue. So once it attacks the underlying tissue, more and more white cells come in. So pretty well what happens is after a while the white cells, they go into a killing frenzy. So they stop differentiating good cells from bad cells. So they start attacking the non-infected epithelial cells, right? So in the case of the, we're just talking about the lungs here for now, or the bronchioles. They start attacking the non-infected cells. So eventually what happens, when it starts attacking the non-infected cells, all of a sudden what you see happening is that the entire epithelial lining gets destroyed. Once the entire epithelial lining gets destroyed, there is no barrier now from the outside to the inside. And that epithelial cell, one of the things that it does, it helps aid in the, the process of gas exchange. So basically, oxygen has to dissolve in the lining, and then that ox- dissolved oxygen just diffuses through the epithelial cells to get into your blood cells. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when that epithelial lining is gone, right, all of a sudden you don't have that barrier and you don't have that the ability to have gas exchange. And when you lose that ability to have gas exchange, that's when people have problems breathing. Right, so the first thing they do is to try to put you on a ventilator, mm-hmm. right, or they give you extra oxygen. The extra oxygen, you haven't got to the point where all all your cells are dead yet. But once you get to a certain point, a point of no return, they put you on a ventilator, 
And sometimes if that inflammation is not resolved, right, the cells themselves are destroyed, there's nothing for gas exchange to happen. And that's when people die because you don't have the ability to, to get oxygen into the blood and out again. Right. right. And so I guess the issue becomes if you lose those cells, do they come back? Right. Right. Now, a lot of these cells come back, but you've got to stop the, the inflammation process. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because if the inflammation process isn't stopped, what happens is that as fast as you try to replace these cells, right, they're just going to be destroyed again. And we see that happening in another disease process, like things like Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease. We right. see that happening there. Okay? Even ulcers, you see that happening there. Right. right. So th- those people are classified as being immune compromised, right? They are immune compromised. But what we're talking about is resolution of inflammation as opposed to lack of immunity or, gotcha. or not producing enough white blood cells or not producing enough antibodies. Okay. okay. The, the inflammation is a final common pathway. Well, that's what I'm trying to, to get at. All right. Okay. And so, again, in order for healing to happen, you have to stop that inflammation process, right? Or you have to control the inflammation process. Stop is probably a. So, this is why people use a whole bunch of different things like anti inflammatories. But what's interesting about anti inflammatories, anti inflammatories work differently, it seems, in different organ systems. So, for example, you can take an anti inflammatory for a headache, right? Yep. But it doesn't seem to work for the gut. For example, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. If you bang up your knee and it hurts like the dickens and it's swollen up, right? Yep. you take a, something like an ibuprofen, it brings the swelling down, it helps with the pain, etc. But you know if you take too much ibuprofen for a long period of time, what happens is that it causes an ulcer in the stomach. Ulcers are a basic form of inflammation. Yes. Right? And again, so you, you cause inflammation elsewhere. Right. So going on a pharmaceutical anti-inflammatory is not going to do the job, right? Because it, it depends on where you're directing it against which organ system. Okay? Right. So you're saying there are different anti-inflammatories are suitable for one system, but perhaps not another. So you really have to understand where the inflammations are to properly treat it. That's yeah? right. And you have to understand it. What's causing the inflammation, meaning what chemical compound is, is actually doing, causing that inflammation. Now, one of the things that we do know that's common across all of these white blood cells and inflammation is that a lot of inflammation is, is caused by, the, by a free radical mechanism, right? By that, I mean, remember our old buddy, the free radical. Yep. Free radicals are very chemically reactive species. And this is basically how one of the things, how white blood cells kill off viruses, kill off bacteria, etc. They release a lot of free radicals. Okay? So what happens is when you release a lot of free radicals, right, these free radicals attack say cell membranes, they attack cell membranes which are good cells, bad cells, they attack free radicals attack bacteria cell membranes, viral particles, coatings, etc. It attacks all these things. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's non discriminate doesn't discriminate. So it's like dropping a bomb. When you drop a bomb in your country, for example, and which is overrun by, say, bad soldiers, it kills off the good population as well as the bad population. So this, right. this is what the free radicals will do. Right? Now, fortunately, in our arsenal, we do have things which will work against free radicals. We have things called antioxidants. Antioxidants is one of the best ways of controlling free radicals. Now, I would love to say to you that we can take so much antioxidant that we basically will stop the free radical mechanism from happening. That does not happen, 
Okay, and it's too ubiquitous. It's, it's a, there's too many free radicals floating around for that for you to ever happen. For that to ever happen, the best you can do is if you consume a lot of antioxidants. The best that you can do with that is basically help control the the, the damage done by the free radicals. Right? right, and I say, and don't get me wrong. You, you you actually do need inflammation too, because if you didn't have inflammation process and you didn't have the free radicals, right, you'd never be able to kill off all these viruses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, right. That's how the so, body knows it needs to attack yeah. the intruder, so, right? Yeah. yeah. So basically, what I'm trying to say is that you need a balance. You need some sort of weird balance in the effect, right? Now, when you're older. Right? There are other chemicals in the body that, that help control this inflammatory process. But as you get older and you have chronic inflammation going on, there's probably a lack of some of these chemicals. Right? So one of the things that you can do to help, help yourself is to increase the intake of, of antioxidants. Okay? okay. And I've been listening to you over the last couple of years. There are different types of antioxidants, That's correct? Right. That's right. Not every single antioxidant will chew up every single free radical known to man. Right? So you yeah. have to take a wide variety of antioxidants. This is why if you're eating, your best source of antioxidants are your food. Okay? Yes. So you take a lot of fruits and vegetables. They're loaded with antioxidants. Okay? The, the only problem with eating a lot of fruits and vegetables is most of us do not eat enough fruits yep. and vegetables. You know, much as we'd like to, we just don't yep. eat enough. Okay? And as you get older, one of the things, too, is that your appetite is less, so you can't, you don't consume as much. And, right? and some of them are difficult to so digest. digest etc., yeah. right? So the next best thing is to take an antioxidant supplement. Right? Okay. Now, there are many different antioxidants you can take out there. So my advice to people is to take a wide variety, not just one, okay? Mm-hmm. A wide variety of antioxidants. And that's because antioxidants hang out in different places, too. For example, uh, I always say it to people, lutein. Everybody says use lutein for the eyes, right? Mm-hmm. And that's because lutein is one of those things that basically hang out in the macular tissue, right? So if you get a free radical attack at the level of the, of the eyes, of the macular tissue, lutein is there, so it chews it up. There's another antioxidant everybody knows called lycopenes. Lycopenes you get from tomatoes, etc., but they tend to hang out more in the reproductive tissue, right? So, mm-hmm. so the testes, the, the ovaries, etc. But again, so if you have a free radical attack at the level of the ovaries or the testes, right, lycopene works. So if you just take lutein, for example, it never gets, it doesn't hang out in, in the testes. So if you get a free radical attack and you've only been taking lutein, you're not, it's not going to be beneficial there. So this is why I say take a wide variety of them, okay? Mm-hmm. So something simple as vitamin C, vitamin E, take those, okay? Fortunately, all these things are very, very safe. Yes. Right? Now, get, getting back to one of the things I also want to point out is that it seems that even after you control the inflammation and you get the healing, and I'll, I'll use an example here. We have an ulcer. The ulcer gets healed, right? What you find is that people who have had healed ulcers are always more sensitive to ulceration again. And the reason for that is because it's like a scar tissue. When you have healing in the gut, you have a scar forming. So if you ever notice when you scrape your skin you have, and you have a scar, the hair cells never grow back. Yeah. Right? And that's the same idea, I think, that happens in the gut. So you're not getting the cilia back, right? You're not getting the There's certain cells called goblet cells that produces mucus. And the mucus has a protective effect from the acids in the stomach, right? And that, that takes a very long time to grow back, if at all. Right? So that's why people are a lot more sensitive to it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for having me again, Jamie. We're going to hear back from you next month. Be safe. Definitely. 
We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Are you stressed out? Feel exhausted? Having trouble sleeping? New Roots Herbal offers natural supplements to help take the edge off, relax, and sleep better. Discover de-stress, chill pills, and sleep aid from New Roots Herbal. Natural ingredients and guaranteed purity for a better day and a restful night. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. For more information, visit newrootsherbal.com. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Mar Marcello is one of the founders of Divorce Angels. Divorce Angels is a website that helps people going through or contemplating divorce by providing online resources, recommendations, and inspirations to help people transition through their divorce and build a new life. She and her partner started the website after seeing how many of their friends in their late 40s and early 50s were going through divorce and their frustration on not being able to find any online help. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So the reason for having you, as I was joking a few weeks ago, that the true winners of COVID are dogs and divorce lawyers. (laughs) But I, you know, you were telling me about your business and I thought it would be very interesting to bring you in because I think with everybody cooped up, I think there's a lot of people who, if they weren't on the edge before, are contemplating divorce or are, have divorce thrust upon them. And uh, it would be helpful to get some information. So have you noticed an uptick in people sort of reaching out to the website and reaching out to you because of COVID? So absolutely, we have. So just to give you a bit of background and, sure. and your and your listeners a bit of background, so that our website is called thedivorceangels.com, and we do provide a number of resources for people contemplating separation or going through a divorce. And our site is broken down into kind of a number of sections, and so there's great professionals that can help you get through, a live chat for people to connect in real time to others that are in the same situation, a forum that kind of deals with issues people have and users can comment and a blog section which is divided up into amazing information from lawyers, financial planners and other people, therapists to help you through that part of your divorce and then also our users have sent us over the years their own personal blogs. So I would say that what we've noticed is that there's been an increase of up to 40% uptick in our chat room of people speaking to one another. And I think that's a function of being cooped up and looking to speak to someone outside of their families. If, if things, if there's tensions growing in the house, and, you know, you can kind of read and hear what people are talking about in the chat room. We've seen a 20% increase in personal and professional connections. And it's really interesting because those connections have been to people like divorce coaches, therapists, and financial planners, and not 
to lawyers and family lawyers, which is, you know, usually our connections are to the family lawyers first, and yeah. we kind of see. So people are kind of looking for other people to help them during this unsettling time. I would say that the biggest thing that we've noticed over the last two months is on our blogs, there is a blog that was written in, by one of our users in 2015 called Dating in Your 50s, Easy for Men, Not So Much for Women. So it was published in May of 2016. Since that time, it's been viewed around the world over 171,000 times with over 551 comments. Since March 1st, it has been viewed over 10,000 times. And so what that means is that when people are Googling, um, because they're Googling, you know, how to start dating in your 50s again, they're being directed to that page and reading the article. So I think that definitely, you know, we're seeing an uptick and people are, are kind of looking at what their options are. The other thing that was interesting is that there is a also a frequently asked question that's written by one of our lawyers. And the question is, can I get a divorce without my spouse's consent? <laughs> and that's been viewed 2,000 times since March 1st. Wow. And the answer just for your users yeah. uh, to know is um, the answer is yes, but you need to live separate and apart for a year. So that's kind of what we've noticed on the bigger scale of the last two months. Yeah, and nobody's living in a separate and apart during COVID. So what no. are our options for people in COVID? Well, you know, it's a really difficult time because everything is on hold. So I think you're seeing all the interesting, a lot of people doing research and preparing. You're not able to get a divorce. In Ontario, all of our courts are closed except for urgent matters. And that would include like spousal abuse or something like that. Spousal abuse, yeah. restraining orders, and they'll only hear financial issues if they're really dire. I just recently read an article that in China, they said that they've seen an unprecedented rise in divorce filings once their government offices opened up. Yep. And the Chinese official said, you know, too much time together. And obviously, yep. that may be the fallout. But I think that for, for here in Ontario, you know, I, I also read an article last week about one of the judges, Ontario judges, saying that, you know, be careful how you operate right now with your spouses because they will look at it later. So you, you really want to be treat each other with respect and, and do what's in the best interest of your well-being, your family's well-being to kind of get you through to the point where you can actually do something. So, I, you know, there's not a lot you can do, unfortunately. All right. Since you've started the site, are you seeing a phenomenon of more people north of 50 looking at divorce? Yeah. So actually, there's a term for it. It's called the gray divorce. And research shows that the divorce rate has doubled for adults age 50 and older since the 90s. Wow. So it's definitely a new phenomenon. You know, people are living longer and they feel more entitled to live full, happy lives. And, you know, once the kids have grown and moved out, a lot of people in their 60s, 70s, even 80s, we've heard stories where they just kind of look around and say, however much time I have left, I need to be happy. And so there's definitely been an uptick in that age group for sure. What are some of the issues that are unique to that age cohort when sort of contemplating divorce? Well, you know, I think, Jamie, you have to remember, like, divorce at any age is such a significant emotional event, of course, right? Yeah. And there's concerns about money, kids, loneliness, and, and all of that. But when you're in your 50s and older, there's added worries like illness, destabilization of adult kids and grandkids, living alone for the first time in decades. What are your retirement hopes? You have elderly parents who might need help. There, there's so many other issues that come into play that wouldn't necessarily, you know, when you're in your 30s and 40s and you have young families, 
you're worried about child support, custody issues. You know, you don't have those in your later 50s, but you do have to look at your entire financial picture and kind of what you saw for your retirement. Main as a unit, now you have two separate incomes, has very different consequences. We have one of the professionals on our site is a certified divorce financial analyst, and she works specifically with this demographic. So she kind of targeted grade of people who are going through a grade divorce. And she, interestingly, had a clients in her late 60s. They were going through a divorce. They were approaching it very collaboratively. And what they were shocked, both the husband and wife were shocked about, was how their grown children were dealing with the divorce. Hmm. I mean, the older kids were absolutely having the most difficult time with it and were actually causing problems with them working out their agreement together. And so, you know, neither party were prepared. They, they thought their kids would just be fine with it. They, you know, they were grown children with their own families. So, you know, that's one of the biggest issues that I don't think people necessarily at that age. Now, obviously, that's nothing. That's no reason to stay with with your partner at that age if, no. if you're looking to move on to that divorce. But it's something to consider in terms of what happens. There's there's going to be an emotional fallout. Yeah, I know that those are headwinds that you just wouldn't be contemplating, right? I mean, you, with all the everything else you would have on your plate in the middle of a divorce to have an adult child sort of act out is, you know. That's daunting. Yeah, It is daunting. And I think that the biggest issue that comes for this demographic is what their financial picture is. Right. And trying to figure out, you know, A, what, what is the most amicable way to get through this divorce at this point and saving enough money so that you can each have your own proper retirement and you, you are living, you, property is divided properly and that, and that you're living full lives and you're not giving all the money to lawyers. And so I would say that one of the things is before people are contemplating this great divorce is that you really, both parties really need to have an idea of what the real financial picture is of their relationship. And usually, you know, there's one that's a CFO and understands everything and all the dynamics for the family and, and one partner doesn't. And so, you know, there's a lot of learning to be done and knowledge to, to be gained before before you even step into this, you know, next step. Is that the first step, you think, that people should really get a handle on, on what the finances are before they move forward? You know, I do. And and I, regardless of your age, I think the first thing to do is to, our biggest recommendation is take your time, right? Emotions are high and you're not, people aren't rational at the, at the early stages. And so there's no rush. And so take some time, do some research, right? There's numerous sites out there that give you great information. There's support calculators. You know, what What I think people forget about is that the law is the law is the law. Yep. And, you know, a judge or the law doesn't care if, if there's infidelity. They don't care about any of those situations. There is rules and laws put in place to protect both parties, which dictate how much support you will get, how the family assets were divided up if, if there's no prenup agreement, which, you know, for this older generation, there may or may not be. I mean, I think the younger generation today now are putting all those into place. They are having prenups so that they're, they're not in the same situation. Maybe they don't merge their finances the same way. But this older demographic, you know, it, it wasn't the same. Divorce right, wasn't yeah. accepted the same way as yep. it is now. So... I do say do your research first. I think you have to have a complete financial picture so you understand all the implications. Things like having access to all your bank accounts, joint accounts, passwords, you know, RSPs. You know, at the end of the day, people divorce gets ugly. And as much as you don't want it to get ugly, but the more information you have and the more you're armed and you have 
all the information available to you, regardless of who you are in that situation, the better. So I think that that is a really key, um, key factor. Before you pick up the phone and call a lawyer, I would say, understand your finances. I would recommend calling a divorce coach who really can help you and, and provide emotional support and help you figure out what you need to have in place before you start racking up your, your legal bills. They're a great resource to have that a lot of people don't know exists. That's great advice. If people wanted more information about this sort of thing, what's the name of your website again? It's thedivorceangels.com, and all of our resources are there. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. That was Mara Marcello. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to improve your digestion on The Tonic. Wayne Elliott here to share my great experience over the past 20 years with Strauss Heart Drops. If you've had bypass surgery, stents, have angina, diabetes, cold hands and feet, grayish blue lips or skin, I urge you to try Strauss Heart Drops and feel better again soon. Strauss Heart Drops saved my life and thousands of others without risk or harm. Go to StraussNaturals.ca to order online or find a store near you. I promise you won't be sorry. I hope you give this to yourself. Thank you. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Megan Horsley is a registered holistic nutritionist, blog writer, and recipe developer. She's passionate about helping her clients discover their best selves with a holistic approach to their well-being with delicious food, movement, and thoughts. Megan loves witnessing the transformations that unfold, and she's a knowledgeable and entertaining and longtime writer for Tonic Magazine. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, Naomi has been making bread nonstop, (laughs) nonstop. We've got a whole bakery going on in the house. And you know what? I've noticed a change to my digestion, and I'm not going to go into the grisly details because nobody really wants to hear the grisly details. Oh, man, except for me. I love the grisly details of digestion. Well, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe off tape, we'll, we'll discuss it. But, you know, that leads to our topic today, which is, yes. which is digestion and how to improve it. Yeah, so we're going to chat about a variety of ways that you can, you know, try to change your digestive habits. And, you know, they're, they're accessible, they're easy to input, so hopefully we can all start trying them today. Yes. So let's Including start. yourself. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I only <laughs> preach, I don't follow, but yeah. <laughs> That's not true. Where would you start? I know where I would start. Where would you start? So, of course, of course, I would start with drinking water. So water is the first on this list of how to improve your digestion because it's the most important So it keeps your muscles hydrated, and this includes your intestines and your colon. So when your water intake is sufficient, these muscles will be well-oiled, so to speak, and they can contract and expand as waste moves through. So imagine what this would feel like if you were dehydrated, right? This is what we would describe as constipation. So it doesn't feel very good. Water is also the base of our digestive juices, and these are full of enzymes that break down our food. So again, we want to make sure we're intaking enough water so we can actually create this 
uh, these digestive juices, right? So this is the simplest and easiest one for everybody, but yet yeah. I, this is the one that I always drop the ball on. I never drink enough water. Yeah, it's honestly, it's, it's the same for all of my clients when I first start working with them. It's really common. A lot of people are not aware of how much water they drink throughout the day. And I think a lot of people assume that if they're drinking some sort of liquid throughout the day, that that's good enough. But when we look at beverages like coffee and tea, which can be diuretics, this is actually doing the opposite of what we want in terms of hydration, right? Yeah. Does it matter when we drink the water? Well, I would say... Definitely. When you wake up first thing in the morning, you wake up dehydrated. So the water in your body while you're sleeping is primarily used a lot for repairing and detoxifying. So when you wake up and you're feeling a little parched, that's the first perfect time of day to get in water. So I would say as soon as you rise, you drink at least two cups. And then what also matters is you know, drinking before and after your meal. So it's quite common for people to have beverages during mealtime. And there is this myth that if you load up on water before your meal, that you'll be fuller. And, you know, this is like a weight loss. Um, yeah. If you fill up on water, then you'll be fuller and you'll eat less food. But the issue here is that if you're drinking a lot of water with your meals, you can be diluting your digestive juices. And this can actually cause gas and bloating after meals. So you're not properly breaking down your food because you have diluted those digestive juices. So that's something to consider. So I typically recommend, you know, small sips of water throughout your meal. But if you're going to have a large amount of water, try to limit that to about 30 minutes before your meals and then up to two hours after meals. So, I mean, this is pretty specific, right? But yeah. <laughs> Yes. You know, but if we if we want to test it out um, to see if that's the cause of our gas and bloating, that's a good place to start. Yeah, I would add one more. And that is, you know, if you're going to exercise, everybody thinks you have to hydrate while you're exercising. But you should actually hydrate before you exercise, too, because by the time you're thirsty, when you're exercising, you're actually way too dehydrated and it will affect your workout. Yeah, definitely. Definitely want to um, rehydrate or hydrate before your workouts. And, and again, like, you know, sips throughout your, your workout yep. are helpful too. Yeah. Yep. All right, let's move on from water. What's next? So another consideration if you want to improve your digestion is to avoid known allergens. So the thing about allergens is that when you eat foods that you know that you're allergic to, this will increase inflammation in your body. So right. some common ones are dairy, gluten, eggs, corn, and pork. And Let's say you're reactive to all or some of these. Our antibodies attach to these undigested food particles. So if we're reactive to a food, chances are we're not digesting it properly. And we have undigested food particles going throughout the bloodstream. And so our antibodies will attach to these food particles and create what's called immune complexes. And so these immune complexes release inflammatory proteins into the bloodstream. And these can cause a variety of symptoms, including poor digestion, headaches, hemorrhoids, and joint pain. So not, right, not, yeah. <laughs> not, not no, those are all, symptoms. Those are all bad. <laughs> not, not, the, not that symptoms usually connote anything good, but th- that sounds particularly unpleasant. These are things we yeah, definitely want to avoid. So let's say you don't know what you're actually allergic to and you, and you suspect that you are allergic to something or you're sensitive to or have a food intolerance, then you can consider getting antibody blood testing done. Now, again, you know, because of what we're currently dealing with, um, with this pandemic, 
you won't necessarily be able to go in and get proper blood testing done, but there are kits um, that your doctor can refer you to. So you can do an in-home test and send that in to get results. So I would say definitely speak to your healthcare practitioner to see what um, options there are for that. Okay. What else would you recommend? Another really important step to improve your digestion would be to eat slowly and calmly. You know, it's, Talk maybe this is more possible these days. You know, a lot of us are at home more these days. But if you think of your typical work environment, if you're eating lunch at home or eating breakfast, dinner out, you know, it's common that we eat in a hurried state and we're scarfing down our food. And well, everybody, generally... everybody knows food tastes better if you eat it quickly. Oh, right. <laughs> when you can't taste it, right? Exactly. <laughs> So we're generally not eating in a parasympathetic state, um, which is known as the rest and digest state of the nervous system. So when you eat in a calm state, your energy is conserved and the intestines and the glands involved in your digestion are actually ready to process your meal. So if you think about it, and maybe you can think back to a situation where you're super stressed, but you had to eat anyway for whatever reason. Digestion after that meal doesn't feel great. It might come out of the body super quick. Or it might stay in there for an uncomfortable amount of time, right? So eating slowly and calmly, you know, avoiding distractions like your phone and TV and really focusing on your meal will help you process your food better. So, And and I think also I think you should avoid foods that necessitate eating it quickly, like tacos or food. Like once you pick it up, you don't want to put it down, right? Because it's a mess or a a juicy hamburger, right? Like if you're going to eat those things, you tend to eat them quickly. That's my experience, at least. <laughs> well, I guess it depends on it depends on who you are. You know, when I eat tacos with my fiance, uh, he's definitely guilty of scarfing right. down his food. There you go. And I eat them, I, and it could be because I already know about the rules of digestion, but I eat them at a really slow pace. It's something that he and I are working on. <laughs> well, does it, d- doesn't all the salsa, like, drip down your hands, though? Like, come on. I eat pretty neatly. Okay. Well, you know, I'm well, good for you. We're, we're pigs in our house. <laughs> so let's just say yeah. you want to try eating slowly and calmly and okay. getting into this state. I would say just start with taking a few really deep breaths before you start eating. If you're noticing you're feeling a little anxious before mealtime, really deep, three long, deep breaths to try to bring down the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and like, you know, when you're eating quickly, you tend to just like swallow before chewing, right? Like chewing is a good one too, right? Yeah, chewing is extremely important uh, if you want to digest. So I would say up to 20 chews, so about 20 chews per bite, which might sound like a lot uh, to some of you and maybe, maybe you, Jamie, but definitely to Jonathan, my partner. Two chews is not enough. Okay, so 20 chews per bite. You want to have a paste in your mouth. And I know that doesn't sound appetizing, but if you want to break down your food properly, this is ideal. So something to work towards. Yeah, this is is like, uh, I hear you. I understand the efficacy of it. I totally get it. Am I going to do it? No, I am not. (laughs) Are any of the listeners going to do it? Probably not. But okay, I'm with you. We're all with you in spirit, Megan. What else? (laughs) So another tip is to avoid cooking and eating while you're upset. So this partly has to do with your nervous system again and um, partly to do with your connection to the food you're cooking. So the whole process and anticipation of eating your food that builds while you're preparing your meal actually has an effect on how you digest. So as you're smelling um, the different scents, the different spices, you you can start to salivate while you're cooking. And this is generally an indication that your digestive juices are starting to secrete, right, from the different glands. And so 
really taking the time to enjoy the process of cooking and eating um, is important for it to digest properly. So, you know, again, there are some people who believe that if you're cooking in an angry state, that that angry energy will be transferred into the food. Again, it's a school of thought. It depends on what you believe. But ultimately, my focus would be on the nervous system and if it's amped up or relaxed, while you're cooking and while you're eating. I'm going to to put a caveat to this, and that is Mm -hmm. some people actually find the act of cooking relaxing, and I happen to be one of those people. So I'm I'm not sure. I do find it. Yeah, so I'm I'm not sure about this one because if I'm in a bad mood, but if I can put together a good meal, that kind of makes me happy. It brings me out of my mood. And then if I get to enjoy it, I don't know. I don't know about this one. Well, it's something to consider, you know, for, let's say, folks who are still cooking for their kids, um, little ones, right? This could be a stressful time. And, you know, let's say the kid, your kids have decided they don't want to eat the food that you've prepared for them. That can definitely cause some, um, some frustration. So, you know, if that's potentially one of the reasons why you may be getting upset while cooking, you know, having your kids cook with you with a kid appropriate tasks may help them be more likely to eat the food with you. Right? Okay. That could be another stress-reducing option. We have time for one last tip. What's it going to be? Yeah, so I would say, you know, definitely seek out a healthcare practitioner that specializes in digestive problems if you are continually having issues with your digestion and they may be able to help you with other steps, um, a different protocol and supplements as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. You'll be back next month to discuss more health and wellness issues, yes? Yes, sir. That was Megan Horsley. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss depression and sex on The Tonic. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Centre is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8300 square foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. My next guest, Carlisle Jansen, is founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality shop and workshop centre in Toronto. And she's the producer of the Toronto International Porn Festival. She's also the author of two books, including Sex Yourself. You can watch her TEDx Toronto talks and educational videos at carlislejansen.com. And if you have questions, you can always reach her at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Hi, I'm well, thankfully. And you? (laughs) I'm well. I'm well. So, you know, here's where we are with COVID. 
you know, I think the province has done an amazing job of keeping everybody safe and smoothing out the curve so we don't overwhelm the hospitals. Mm-hmm. And that's the good part. Yep. The bad part is, and, and I don't think we're spending enough time looking at it, and that is the effect to our psyche and our feelings and our mentality about everything that everybody's had to do in order to cope. And mm-hmm. I think we're heading towards, hopefully not, but I think we are, a mental health crisis. And there's a lot of people out there with anxiety and depression, and that's obviously going to impact your sex life, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I think that people who are already prone or already had anxiety or depression, this is certainly not helping. And those of us who've been a little bit luckier on that front and have not had to deal with it, I mean, I think the uncertainty and the fear is contributing to a lot more of that out there. And certainly it impacts all aspects of our lives, right? And sex sex is no exception. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's houses that are more crowded now, you know, yep. like, you know, that finding privacy, right. all this impacts and, and, you know, not having sex can sort of, I would presume, add to people's anxiety, right? Well, yeah, not having sex, having your partner in front of you 24-7, you know, you're exposed to more things that make you upset. Yep. <laughs> You know, it's harder sometimes to talk about things. So, you know, and, and we all have different ways of coping with stress, right? For some yeah. of us, it's more sex, and for some of us, it's less sex. So those differences are also going to polarize in a relationship if one person wants more and one person wants less. Or if, you know, I just need to know that at least something is okay in my life and that we're okay. Exactly. Um, If my job isn't or my, you know, my parents aren't or my kids aren't, you know. So it's a magnifier, right? And, And sex is often one of those things that really indicates how things are going in a relationship and, and in an individual. Agreed. So if you suspect that your significant other or your partner may be suffering from depression, what are some of the signs that you might want to look for? So certainly if they're really irritable, more so than usual, more regularly, if something really has changed, and of course everything's changed right now, so it's a bit hard to see, but certainly around their disposition, if they're exhausted, and sometimes we think like, oh yeah, you know, it's hard to work out, or you know, you're working a lot, or whatever, but sometimes what's mental exhaustion shows up as physical exhaustion. Another thing is, you know, if you're really, all of a sudden they're just not interested in the things that they used to want to do, or if everything seemed so much harder, so much more challenging, even just basic hygiene, you know, those kinds of things, watching for. And then also, you know, coping in newer and maybe less helpful ways. So drinking more, using cannabis more. And of course, there are medicinal advantages to cannabis. But if it's sort of more of an escape or they're using more THC than CBD. We're not talking about self-medicating. Right. Sorry, we are talking about self-medicating as opposed to like if you've been prescribed cannabis, that's one thing. But but if you are self-prescribing cannabis to deal with your issues, that's something very different. Yeah. 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 And again, you know, exercise can be really great, but too much can also be unhelpful. So are there ways that it looks as though your partner's avoiding their feelings and what's going on? Okay. So let's assume some of the hallmarks are there. How would you raise it with your partner? What would you suggest? Yeah. 
I mean, you can check in with your partner. How are you feeling, right? And not, you know, while you're having breakfast or whatever, but really, you know, when you can have a chance to chat, like, how are you really feeling? And, you know, nobody wants to be pressured. And certainly there's so much shame about depression and anxiety, unfortunately. And so they might not want to admit it. And so really saying, like, look, if you know you can talk to me, if you don't want to, that's fine. You know, there are other supports if you need it, but really not pushing your partner to open up, but just saying like, hey, I see that things are different. I love you. I want to support you. You know, let me know if I can do something. And it might be that, you know, let me help you, you know, I'll make dinner tonight or, you know, let me do this thing for you. Um, Let me give you a back rub. Like anything that helps somebody feel sort of safety and security is more likely to help them to open up rather than feeling like they have to be strong or that, you know, they have to hold things together. Yeah. And depression can really manifest itself physically, you know, in your sex life. Like it's real, right? Like if you're depressed, you might not have any interest in sex at all, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. So I spoke to Joellen Naughty, and she is a sex educator, and she just wrote a book called The Monster Under the Bed, Sex, Depression, and the Conversations We Aren't Having. Hmm. And so it was a really interesting conversation. And she gave me several tips that I mentioned above, but yeah. also she talked about, she. so she did a survey with many, many people, and she found that, you know, sex and depression, it really plays out differently depending on who you are. So she talked about how she was trying to avoid a depressive episode once. And in order to avoid it, she was working constantly, going out dating, never stopping, which is different than what we think of as the typical depressive of, you know, I don't want anybody to touch me. I don't want to do anything. And in her interview, she said a quarter of the people she interviewed found that when they were depressed, they had more sex (laughs) than usual. And sometimes it was a result of the medications that they were on. Sometimes it was an escape. Sometimes it was kind of a self-destructive pattern, right? Like not healthy coping. Sometimes it was looking for validation. So often, yes, three quarters of the time, it's about sort of not being interested in sex and not wanting touch and not wanting connection. But sometimes it looks quite different and you we wouldn't necessarily think of it as being depression. And then she, she sort of broke it down into three main categories. So Feelings about having sex, you could be, you know, interested in lots more or less, as we mentioned, and then there's body responses. So whether you lubricate much, whether you feel genital numbness, whether you get erections or not. So those kinds of things come up. And then the third one was sort of a sense of numbness. So one person in her survey talked about how they felt like their genitals were wrapped in bubble wrap that, that just didn't feel sensations or that other people said that the sensations, it turned the volume down. So what used to feel like a 10 in terms of like, wow, that's awesome, felt like a two or a four that, you know, that things just don't feel as pleasurable as they used to. And certainly a lot of people have challenges with orgasm. Sometimes that's more about the medications that they're delayed or they don't have any orgasms or the orgasms feel weird or different or not as pleasurable. And that actually 15 to 70% of the people on medications are going to have sexual side effects. So that's a big range, right? (laughs) 15 to 70%, like, whoa, that could be, you know, it basically means that probably, (laughs) you probably have an effect from them. So how does that manifest other than sort of a physiological change? What sort of things do the antidepressants do to you sexually? 
say I've heard it described as you're all dressed up, but then you're not really interested in the party. So it makes you more interested in maybe having sex, but then when you get there, it's it's not as pleasurable. Now, a lot of people have said that Wellbutrin is an antidepressant that tends to have less impact on orgasm and lubrication, and that even some people find that it does produce this elevated interest in sex in ways that can be unhealthy for some folks. Mm. But the, the disadvantage of Wellbutrin is that it tends to be a little bit milder. And so often then people have to also then, it doesn't deal with the other effect, the symptoms that they need to deal with. So sometimes they then have to take also other meds that have sexual side effects. So obviously talking to your medical professional is the person to discuss this with, but certainly, you know, different medications have different impacts on different people and different aspects of life. And so, you know, it's about figuring out and which are the things that are more important to you. Yeah, yeah. True. True enough. So do you think it's possible to have a sexual relationship if you're suffering from depression? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, lots of people do. And, you know, what Joellen mentioned was really making it normal so that it's not the depression that's going to you know, really, quote unquote, ruin a relationship, which a lot of people think it's resentment. It's when we don't talk about it. It's when we hide away from it. And so what happens sometimes is that people with depression might feel like something's broken inside of them and there's something wrong with them. So they either try to hide it or they just sort of say like, oh, well, you know, I'm lucky to have any partner, right? And then sometimes we compromise what we're willing to put up with if we have a partner who's not necessarily as good to us as we would like. So it really, it depends, but, you know, sort of keeping the conversation open is really what's important and and trying different strategies. Do you think it's possible that like a sexual relationship could help somebody who's suffering from depression? Absolutely. I mean, Joellen talked about how it's helped her and it, it helps her get back to who she is. You know, I think, again, it really varies from person to person that that extra support can be really important. But, and, you know, and sometimes we're in one depressive episode and it'll help in another depressive episodes, it won't. So it really depends, but certainly it can, that support can be invaluable and can help people to get through it. We have time for one more question. And that is, you know, if somebody is suffering from depression, you know, what would be uh, some tips to maintain your sex life? Yeah, I mean, certainly sex toys are a great way to assist and help you with orgasm, with lubrication. And as I said, don't avoid it. So even if you aren't interested in sex, talk about like, look, I'd love to have sex, but I'm just not feeling it. You know, can we do something else? And Joellen talked about a sexual skeleton key. So if there's one thing that often works, try that and then be open. Maybe it'll work this time, maybe it won't. But that if you have sort of a couple things that you say, like, let's try it and see if it gets going, at least you've got some options and you're you're trying, you're talking about it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. You'll be back next month to discuss more sex, health and wellness issues. I will. Fantastic. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Mara Marcello, Megan Horsley, and Carlisle Jansen. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. During COVID-19, we're suspending distribution of the magazine, but Tonic's generally available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. 
If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss vitamin D, light cooking for spring, and metabolic training for all ages. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.